Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to have to come before you and to study your word. We ask you to be with us. Show us what you would have us to learn from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you and being absent and bold toward you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherein I think to be bold against some which think of us as we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in the readiness of revenge, to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look upon things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him also think again, this again, that as it is Christ, even so we are Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of, of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would, be, would terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. All right. Paul is continuing his discussions with the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, even though Paul started the church in Corinth, they tended to like other pastors better. And he still thought of them as his church, and he wrote, he wrote some hard letters to them and, and corrected them, even though they at times, you know, they were, they were kind of a crazy group. Some of them said, well, I, I belong to Paul. Some said, I belong to, to Peter. Some said, I belong to Apollos. And some of them were really spiritual, said, I belong to Christ. Uh, and Paul's saying, you know, hey, I am given authority of this church. I, you know, I'm the one that helped start it. I have the authority to be able to say what needs to be said. And he says, now I, Paul, beseech, and this word for beseech, he says, I'm calling you to my side. Come along beside me and listen. I want to be gentle. I want to do this kindly. I'm begging you to listen to me uh, by the meekness of, of gentleness of Christ. And, you know, we think about this. Jesus is gentle and meek at this time. Now, in Revelation, we see Jesus change from the Lamb of God to the Lion of Judah, the King of Judah. And at that point in time, he is going to come in with vengeance and everything else that a king would demand, obedience. And there will be a major change in the way he deals with people. Right now, he deals completely through grace and mercy and his love. But when he changes to the king, everything's going to be, you've rejected me, now you're going to have to obey and there's a big difference. Now, we will get to know him in heaven as the husband and bride, and we will have the gentle side of him. Just as in the Old Testament, there was a gentle side of God, even though he was demanding and righteous and holy. There was a, but he had a gentle side. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Joseph was, was given positions. You know, all these different people knew God's grace and mercy as well, even in the Old Testament. But right now, we live in a period of grace and mercy. Doesn't mean that God doesn't have standards. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira found out when they tried to get the church to believe, you know, hey, we gave, we gave all our money. We're really spiritual. God says, you've lied to me. You've lied to the church. You're dead. And they died right there that day in, in front, front of the church. Okay, God still has a holy, righteous side and always will. And he will always have a merciful, kind side and always will because he loves us. He has a holy righteousness that says, I demand obedience. I demand you to, to be godly. But he also has the holiness and righteousness saying, well, I know you are sinners. You're, you're fallen people. I died for you so that you, my grace can be what <laughs> allows you to come before me. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, I'm beseeching you by the gentleness of Christ. And he's going to go on to say, you know, I have the authority. I'm the, I'm the one in charge of this church. I have the authority to be very nasty with you if I wanted to. And he says that who in presence and base, and this means low spirit, and you know, he says towards you. He goes, when I'm in your presence, I'm being kind, I'm being 
low. I'm, I'm not trying to, I don't want to hurt people. I want to be very kind to people. He goes, I have the right to be able to get in your face. But he goes, I want, when I'm in your presence, I want to be loving to you. And he says, you know, he even admits this is what he's doing. He's being hard on them on letters so that when he's in their presence, he can be kind to them. And there are times when a leader of a church has to be pretty hard on somebody and saying, uh, you're, you're making a lot of mistakes here. That is not our goal. We hope to do it through preaching and teaching and, and gentleness. But there can come a time when we just say, hey, you know, you're really, you're making bad decisions. And really get in people's face because that's who God's called us to, to be. We're the one that will give account for everybody that's in our church and before God. And our hope is that our messages will bring people into correction with Christ. The gentleness. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to stand up in front of people. But we're just going to preach. And if it hits home in, in your heart, then it wasn't necessarily even aimed at you. It was just God ministering to your heart. But there can be a time when somebody has to be sat down and say, hey, look, your choices are bad. You're making, you're, you're making a lot of bad decisions. You're not following God's word. You need to correct your life. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't like it when pastors get that much into and we try not to have to do that. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, when I'm in your presence, I'm lowly, I'm, I'm humble. I'm not trying to get in your face about things. Uh, but then he says in verse 2, but I beseech you. Now, this word beseech means to beg for a need. This is different to the calling, calling aside. In this case, he's saying, I'm begging you to listen. Before, I'm just calling you alongside it. You know, come alongside of me and be like me. Listen to me. Let me be your... But this one is now, I'm begging you to make the right decisions. I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm in your presence with the confidence whereof I think to be bold against some, but which think that we walk according to the flesh. He says, I'm, I can be bold. and I can be. He says, I want to be gentle. He goes, and, there's some, and literally he's saying, there's some of you that deserve me to be in your face. He says, but I don't want to be that way. Uh, it's just like a parent who doesn't necessarily want to be disciplining their children every single time they see them, or a, or a manager who's looking, you know, I don't want to be on, you know, on your case every time. And we look for things to be able to be positive about, but there are times when it must be done. You know? And I can remember, especially when my kids were young, it was always seeming to be corrections. As they got older and more mature, they, they made better decisions, and it was a lot easier. It was the same thing in the workforce. You know, there were times when somebody would be brand new and had, needed a lot of corrections all the time. And after a while, they usually did what they were supposed to do. Uh, and if they didn't, eventually they would end up being fired because they weren't, weren't growing with the company. Uh, you can't fire your kids. You can't fire people from the, well, you technically can from the church, you know, but if we follow the scriptures, they have to be really bad and not listening to any correction. And then Paul says, kick them out of the church. And Jesus said the same thing. If somebody needs correction, you go to them one-on-one -on -one and talk to them. If that doesn't work, you go with, with another person. If that doesn't do, you go before the church. And at that point, if they still don't come, you say, sorry, you're not, you're not coming, can't be part of the church. Uh, that doesn't happen a whole lot. But Paul, and for the Corinth church, had somebody that they did that to. He said in, in 1 Corinthians, there was this man that was sleeping with his mother-in-law. He says, he thinks it's okay. You're not having a problem. Get him out of the church. And in 2 Corinthians, he had to go to them. Okay, he's repented. Let him back in. Okay, because they were getting so spiritual. We got rid of him. We're not bringing him back. And, and Paul's going, no, he's repented. You know, get him back in. Get him back into fellowship so that he doesn't go into further sin. And the whole purpose of kicking somebody out of a church is so that eventually they will repent and come back. And it's harder in our day and age because there's so many different churches. If somebody's kicked out of one church, they go to another and don't even tell anybody about what happened in another church. And there's not a lot of communication between the churches. But there's still that part of discipline in there that says, no, I want you to grow. And it's not done out of vindictiveness. It's done saying, we love you so much, we want you to get right with God. And you cannot pollute the body of Christ with your activities. And Paul says, you know, hey, I have the confidence. I'm in charge of, the, you know, this is my church. I have the ability to do so, but I'm not wanting to do this. I want people to choose to be obedient. And then it says, you know, and, and we're being accused of walking in the flesh. Now, walking in the flesh means to do things according to our 
worldly way of thinking. And all of us tend to do things by our world's way of thinking. All right? When somebody hits you, the first thing you want to do is you know, smack them upside the head. If somebody comes and attacks you and attacks your, your, your character, the first thing you want to do is get out and defend yourself and vigorously go after them. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, we're, you know, you're, you're accusing us of walking after the flesh because we're calling your sin out. He goes, but that's not what's going on. In verse 3, it says, For we walk in the flesh, but we do not war after the flesh. In other words, we're not fighting battles after the flesh. If we fight battles after the flesh, a lot of people do. Okay, Fight fire with fire. They attacked me, I'm going to give them back an equal or more, more attack back. They hurt me, I'm going to at least equally hurt them. And Paul's saying, no, we don't follow the way the world fights. And this is something that I say so often. We want God to be our defender. You know, he is our defender. He's the one that cares for us. You know, one thing I've learned over the years is God is a wonderful defender. If we just let him defend us, he will defend. He will defend our reputation. He will defend the church's reputation. He will defend his children's reputation. It's not a problem. God is wonderful at it. And the sad thing I've seen is sometimes he goes after people much harder than I ever wanted to, wanted to see them gone after. And when you try to defend yourself, you usually make things worse. Almost always. At least it does in my case. I've always made things worse when I defend myself. You know, I say the wrong things. I do the wrong things. I attack somebody personally. And then, they, then they're feeling hurt. And then they attack even more. And it just spirals into a huge mess. But if you just sit back and say, God, you're my defense. I'm just going to kick back and, and watch you. He makes a perfect defense. And things get worked out. Sometimes, they, sometimes the people get hurt badly because of their attacks. But God knows what it takes to make them get by. But if we try to do it the world's way, it's a mess. <laughs> Always. And uh, verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So when we do things in a spiritual way, they are mighty. And God tears down strongholds. And this can even be for our own thought patterns. If I've got a sin nature or I've got a sin problem that I have and I just can't get victory over it, this is my verse. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal. They're not what I can do. But God pulls down the strongholds. Because all of us have sins that just seem to drag us down, that we just can't get victory over in ourselves. And God says, I don't want you to get it done on yourself. He says, I can drag them down. And that's going to come through knowing his word, getting to understand God, and surrendering to him and saying, God, I just need you to tear down this stronghold. And this is important for us because all of us have them. All of us have strongholds. And after God destroys one stronghold, he'll reveal another one sitting out there that was waiting to come along. We'll spend our entire life having him destroy our strongholds if we just let him. And fighting them ourselves for a long time before we let him. True maturity is when we get to the place where we say, God, I just can't do it, you do it. Now, nobody is there at true maturity. We're always growing. But as we get more and more mature in Christ, we get better at, God, I just want you to take care of this. When we're first starting out with Christ, it's hard. It's very hard to let him. Because part of our mind is saying, I've got to do something. I've got to be good enough to, to please him. And we have to get first off to the understanding that I can't be good enough to please him. Nothing I do is going to please him in my flesh. All he wants me to do is surrender to him and say, God, I'm giving the stronghold to you. you know, I'm just a worthless, you know, I can't get over this thing. I'm worthless. You take it away from me. And God says, here we go. And he tears them down. And there's nothing he can't tear down. And then he shows us the next stronghold we have to fight. And we go through the same process all over again of trying to fix it ourselves for a while and finally saying, God, I surrender. Now, the key is, how long does it take us to fight this? I, I've, I've had a case where I fought for six, seven years on, it, on an issue before I gave it up. And I've been done, doing much better over the last few years. I've known people that have gone decades trying to fix themselves because they just won't surrender to God. You know, true submission to God says, God, I, you just do it. And if we can get there, what a wonderful place that is. And that's where maturity comes in. We should be getting better at surrendering our strongholds to him and saying, God, 
I can't do it. I need you. And that's where maturity comes in. All right, God, <laughs> you showed me another one. You, know, you take it down. You take it down. Verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How does God tear down the strongholds? He says he's going to cast down every imagination. Imaginations, how I think, what, you know, what I think about things. Uh, the, the idea of the imagination here is uh, my reckoning, my judgment. What do I think about things? And God says, I want to cast those down. I want to cast down your way of thinking. And this is true for us. You know, this goes back to the flesh. You know, when somebody attacks me, I want to attack them back. If they strike me, I want to strike them back. And I want to make sure that they get belittled more than I got belittled, which then intensifies the battle. And Jesus is saying, I want you to get rid of all of that. I want your way of doing things torn down. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Don't ever give me, don't ever think when I say these things that I'm saying these things are easy. They are tough. It is very tough to let him cast down our imaginations, to let him have rule in our life. And every time, and when you think you got there, he'll show you another area that you don't, that you're not there yet. Or show you that you're not even as close as you think you are. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And this is the thing about following God. The more we follow him, the more we're obedient to him, the more we learn to surrender to him, the easier the next step gets. Even though the test is harder, we've already come a long ways and we're used to it and we know that and we get confidence that God is faithful. And the more confidence I have that God is faithful, the easier it is for me to trust him you say, okay, God, you've been faithful at least once, or you've been walking long enough. God, you've been faithful 28 times, you know, 30 times, 100 times. I can trust you, and it becomes much easier. Will it all ever become totally easy? No, because we're, sin we're sinful <coughs> beings with a, with a sin nature. But it does get easier. Each decision gets easier with each practice. When God asks us to love people, the, each time we start loving people, it gets easier. When he teaches us to forgive people, each step of forgiving becomes easier. Uh, each time we step in, into the, these things, it becomes easier and easier because we see how faithful God is, and that's casting down those imaginations, casting down everything I think. And then he goes, not only just the things I think, but every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. These are our own imaginations, and they can come from outside. But it's like when you're trying to learn to love somebody, and all of a sudden you come across somebody who is the most unloving person that you can possibly imagine, and God's saying, I want you to love them. And every, every emotion in you is saying, God, there is no way I can love this person. You know, there's no way I can even like this person. And you're asking me to love them? God, you want me to forgive this person? Look what they did to me, God. And Jesus is saying, well, look what, the, look, what, what, look what the world did to me. They put me on a cross. And so he says, I've got something to answer, but your flesh is going to come up with every reason on why it cannot work. God asks you to start giving a tithes, tithes and offering, and people go, God, I can't even pay my bills as is, and you want me to give you 10%? And God says, just trust my word. God, you want me to love this person? Nobody loves this person. This person, nobody loves this person because of how mean and nasty and obnoxious Aaron God says, I want you to love this person. And our mind gets up all these thoughts to say, do not do things this way. And he says, I want to take those and look at the word, he says, into captivity. Bring them into captivity. Make them a prisoner and under control. And, you know, and this is something we see the idea of Captivity, if you've watched any kind of war movies, a prisoner of, of war, captive, you watch anything about prisons and jails, people in captivity. When you're in captivity, you do what you're told, you go where you're told, you eat when you're told, you eat what you're told. Okay? You don't make any choices. And, and what God is saying is, I want to bring all of your imaginations into captivity. In other words, I want to put them in prison. Now, that sounds wonderful if we would just let God do that. And it is wonderful when we let him do it. 
And he says, I just want all that, all that garbage, I want to put under captivity, and I want to replace it with the knowledge of the word of God. The, the knowledge. And this means a thorough knowledge of God. How do we get thorough knowledge of God? Well, primarily we get into God's word on our own. And we also come to Bible studies and services and have others help, help understand it and teach it to us. But that's where it comes into. We fill our minds so much with God's truth that when the wrong things get put into our mind, come into our mind, we recognize it. And this is the great thing. that The more we get to know God, the closer we walk with God, the easier it is to recognize the wrong. You know, our mind is telling us, you know, that person's so mean, you can't, you know, you better, you better get back at them sometimes even before they do something to you because they deserve it. And God's saying, no, we want to live, we want to edify, we want to build up, we want to love this person. And we're, and it goes against our grain sometimes. You know, well, you know what, God, this person's threatened me or they've said this or they've been talking behind my back. And God said, I've got it. I've got it. You just, you just do what I tell you to do. Edify and build them up. Does that mean they're going to be your best friend? Probably not. But it also means you don't try to attack them just because they're in your presence. You know, uh, again, God isn't telling us that everybody's going to be our best friend. When, we, when we're to love other people, it doesn't mean, okay, yeah, you come on into my house and you know, we're, going to, we're going to be best buds for life. No, it's not. <laughs> you, know, you can love somebody without having that kind of relationship with them. You know, that idea of loving them is just, I'm not going to tear them down. I'm not going to... I'm not going to make them pay for what I think they need to pay for. As a matter of fact, I'll probably even be sad when they get punished. And I've seen that over and over in my life. There's some people that have gotten punished because of things they've done, and I know they got punished for what they've done. And sometimes it's what they've done to me, and I, I was not happy that they got, got punished because that's not what I wanted. I wanted them to be, to be blessed and to be built up and to follow God. Now, I know that God knew what he was doing and did just what he had to do, but it didn't make me excited that, they, that it happened to them. I don't want to see people go to jail. I don't want to see people get crushed by God. I don't want to see them lose their family members, even though they deserve it for the activities they do. But I know that God does what he has to do to get hold of their lives. And I had one particular person that I, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his business. He lost everything because of the way he treated an, another pastor. And it's like, you don't know what you're doing. And I've gone to him and said, you've got to stop this because this is not the way you want to go. And I wasn't excited when he lost all this stuff, even though, you know, I go, God, this must be what he needs to get, get his attention, hopefully. But, you know, others suffered because of his disobedience, namely his family. They suffered because of his disobedience. And this is what he says, I want to bring everything into captivity through the obedience of Christ. You know, as I get more and more obedient to Christ, my thoughts get under captivity. I don't have to deal with all the crazy sins and, and everything. And the, as long as I stay focused on him and his truth, things get pretty easy. Now, when I stop reading my Bible, I stop focusing on him, then all of a sudden the thoughts say, oh, we've got, we've got some holes in the gates. We can, we can get out of captivity and, and cause havoc. And this happens all the time in our lives. You know, how much problems do we have when we get out of his will and out of his relationship? A lot. You know, the closer I walk with him, the better off I am. And this is why it's important for us to be in God's word and praying and in fellowship with the church and being taught in the church. And I can usually tell over the years, I've seen this, if somebody stops coming to church, what usually started happening is they stopped reading their Bible in the first place, and then they stopped praying, or they stopped praying and then stopped reading their Bible, one, one of those two things. And then after a while, they're going, well, that pastor is kind of getting meddlesome, and the individuals here they are asking how, me do, how I'm doing. I don't want to be around them. And the next thing you know, you're not coming to church. It starts with not being in the Bible, then it comes to not being in church, and then you... You get down a few years later and go, how did, how did I get here? You know, I'm in the pig slime again, in the, in the sloth and the dirt and the mud, and you know, how did I get here? You know, I used to, used to enjoy God and used to have fun with God, and now this is where I'm at. And it's a slow progression. The more I turn my back on God, the more I fall into this pit of, pit of despair, pit of sloth, whatever you want to call it, you know, the mud. 
And so, and after a while you go, wow, how'd I get here? God, God, can you lift me out of this? And the good news is he'll lift you right out of it. But it all comes to not putting our thoughts into subjection to Christ. When God tells us we should be doing something, we need to be ready to quickly decide I'm going to be obedient. And this can be the hard thing. This is why people stop reading the Bible sometimes. You know, they read the Bible and God says, I want you to get rid of this. God can't get rid of that. Don't want to get rid of that. And he's going, well, this verse, I want you to be obedient. And because we get enough of those things in our life, we kind of back away from God. I've, I've shared, sometimes God's working on my heart and it seems like every pastor on the radio is talking about the same topic that week. Yeah. You know, okay, it's like, okay, God, I've heard you the first time. You know, I, don't, I don't need it 50 times this week. And yet, he's given it to me over and over again. And when he's convicting us, we feel that way. You know, everybody who talks to us is saying that we need to fix this. Everybody we hear on the radio is saying we do this. Every time we read the Bible, God's speaking to us. Because he wants us to bring everything into captivity. And that's what verse 6 is. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience with your obedience is fulfilled or complete. God says, when you're obedient, it will revenge your disobedience. God wants obedience. Now, obedience is not going to earn us heaven. It's not going to earn us even pleasure with God. But he says, I want you to be obedient, and that will overcome your disobedience. Because when we're disobedient, God has to put judgment on us. There's consequences. When we're obedient, God says, okay, now I can bless your obedience. And it's obedience. We start with obedience in small things. Whatever a small thing is for, for that individual. The longer you walk with God, the bigger the small thing is going to be. But when you're first starting out with God, sometimes that obedience is just coming to church. It's just getting up in the morning and, and reading three or four verses in the Bible. You know, and God wants us to start. That's all he's looking for is start. And it's hard sometimes to just get used to reading the Bible. It really is. Because as soon as you start deciding, I'm going to read the Bible, all kinds of chaotic things are going to happen to you. You, know, you sit down to read the Bible, and all the kids wake up and, it's time, you know, and want something. You start to read your Bible, and somebody's going to call you from, from someplace else and just need to talk to you. you know, it is sometimes hard to get started. And so God is saying, just start. Even if it's only four or five verses. You know, we, challenge, we challenge two to three, ver you know, two or three chapters to get it through done in the whole year. But I really just want people to start. If all you can do is read four or five verses at a time, good, <laughs> get started. You know, time to pray, I guarantee if you start trying to learn to pray, when you, especially when you first start it, all kinds of chaos is going to happen. You know, you start praying, the dog wants out. You start, you know, get the dog taken care of, and you start praying, and the kid gets up and needs water. You, you know, get the kid taken care of, maybe back to bed, and you start praying again, it's time for you got to go to the bathroom. You know, it's... Uh, all kinds of, and then you get all done with that and you start getting ready to do it and say, what's the, what's the use? I've, I've wasted 30, 40 minutes trying to do this and you give it up. And this is what he's saying. Revenge the disobedience with obedience. Just do what he is asking to do. Whatever it is. And I'm going to say, don't try to change your whole life in one time. Just little pieces at a time. Say, God, what is it you want me to change now? What are we going to start with? Is it going to be read the Bible or pray? Is it going to be to come to church? Some people, it's just to get to church every, every, you know, every Sunday morning uh, or at Bible study or whatever because it's really easy to get sidetracked from that. You decide, I'm going to go to church, and somebody is sick that morning. <laughs> or you're sick or you're just not feeling good or you got a headache or somebody wants to do something or needs to, or at least feels like they need to do something. All kinds of things will come against you when you decide to obey God in an area. And the key that we need to do is be able to step forward with him. Avenge that disobedience with obedience to God. In small, and start out small. You know, okay, God, I'm going to be a missionary to, to, to Africa. Okay, you might be, but let's start out small. Can you be the missionary across the street and talk to that person? If you can't talk to the person across the street, you're definitely not going to talk to the people in Africa. You know, if you can't invite people to church, you're not going to ever invite people to church, you know, whether you know them or not. If you can't get into God's word, you won't have anything to tell people anyway. It starts out small and just talk with God. God, what is it you want me to start with? 
Where can I start? And he's going to recognize and he's going to bless that starting place. And this is what I tell people. I cannot judge people by the standard God has placed in me 47 years after I become a Christian. He has changed a lot in me. I cannot expect somebody brand new to be where I am 47 years later. And so my job is to trust that God is working in your heart, to encourage you, to build up. And for us, for every single person, wherever you're at, you can't expect somebody else to be where you're at that's just starting. Or wonder why you're not like somebody <laughs> who's been walking for God for decades. Because those things have changed. There's things that God does not let me do that I would never tell people because I don't want them to feel like, oh, well, pastor's like this, so I've got to be like this. No, I don't want you to try to be like me. I want you to work out your own salvation and have God say, this is where you're to be, this is where you're going to be. Because sometimes you're going to work on things that I never had to work on. And you don't have to work on things that I had to work on. Because God has an individual plan for each one of us. And he says, revenge that disobedience with obedience. When he tells you that something's wrong, start being obedient as, as best you can. And sometimes it's just real simple. God, I can't do it. I need you to do the work. And most of the time, that's what it is. When God reveals a disobedience, most of the time it's going to be me going to God and saying, God, I can't do it. I need you. I need you to take away this, this uh, imagination, this thought. And God has been working in my heart on some, some issues. And it's kind of amazing some of the things he'll do. If I find myself drifting in there, all of a sudden something else will come up. Or if it's bedtime and my mind starts drifting off to the wrong thing, sometimes I'll find out I'm dead asleep very quickly. God is working on making the changes. And this is important for us because it takes him to get victory. It really does. I can tame my flesh for a while, but to get victory takes him. He wants to crucify that flesh. Verse 7, do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him also think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. So he's basically saying, do you look at, do you look at things from the outside? You know, hopefully we don't, because you can get fooled. You know, people get fooled all the time by looking at the exterior. This is what con artists do. They, they get people to look on exterior things and... You know, they're, they're playing, playing you for a fool. And that's what Paul's saying. You can't look at the exterior. He goes, you trust in yourself that you are God's, Christ? Do you think you're a Christian? Then if you think you're a Christian, then make sure you understand that we are. And he's basically saying, don't judge people. In plain language, he's saying, don't judge. Uh, and there is a place for us to look and say, this person I don't see Christ in, but it's between them and God. Okay, and there are many people that I look at and say, these people say they're Christians, but I don't see it. You know, it's between them and God, but I am going to give them the gospel message. I'm going to treat them a little more as if they're not saved. Not that I'm judging them, but I'm going, is this person's life changing? When I see people's lives changing, I'm going, this person's Jesus. But even that can fool you. If somebody's really disciplined, they can fool you that they're changing for a short time. When you get to be around them for years... You go, okay, this person's changing. This is what they used to do in this situation. Now they're making a more godly decision. And I see that in lots of people in this church. But having been here for six years, there's lots of people in this church I look and say, they're not perfect yet, but man, what a difference it's been. God is changing their heart. And this is what he's saying. Don't look after it because it's all God. And this is what's important. God is the one that brings the change. He's the one that will get us corrected, ultimately. You know, we, we raise our kids. We try to discipline our kids. We try to discipline ourselves. But ultimately, it's God who raises up himself in people. Our job is to try to discipline. When I was raising my kids, my goal was that by the time they were teenagers, that they were fairly disciplined and just needed me to guide a little bit. And most of the time, that's all it took. They didn't have to discipline my kids too often as teenagers. A little bit here, a little bit there, take away a privilege once in a while. But as teenagers, I gave them a lot more freedom so that if they failed, I was there to help lead to the right direction. A lot of my questions were with my teenagers, well, what do you think you should do in this situation? Rather than telling them. When they were young, 
up to about 12 years old, pretty much told them, this is what you're going to do in this situation because this is what God wants you to do. As they got to be teenagers, well, what do you think the right thing? You know, my, one of my sons decided he wanted to go out on a date with a girl who wasn't a Christian. You know, he was old enough to have to make his own decision and live with the consequences. You know, and we talked a long time about it, and I told him it really wasn't a very wise idea. It wasn't biblical. And he gave me the famous last line that everybody will give. It's not like we're going to get married. We're just going out on this date. Well, he's married to her now. <laughs> She's still not a Christian. And he doesn't go to church now. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, I could have forbid him to do that, but it wouldn't have changed, you know, at 16 or 17 at the time he was, it wasn't going to change things. Tried to direct him in the right direction, and nothing worked. Uh, you know, but he was at an age where it's okay. You're going to have to live with your decisions. You know, when he was 12, I would have said, no, that's not going to happen. I wouldn't have let him, my kids date at 12 anyway. But, you know, but, you know no, you're not going to do dating, you know, dating somebody that's not a Christian. But at, at 16, it was more of a, what are you going, you know, you have to make your decision. This is what God says. And be able to show all that what God says. And this is revenging disobedience with obedience and doing what is right. Verse 8, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us in, for edification, and not for your instruction, I should not be ashamed. And so Paul's saying, hey, I could, I could glory, I could boast, I have authority. This is my church. I have the authority to discipline. He goes, but it was really given to me to edify. And this is the most important thing. When we learn to edify people, we can get a lot more correction out of their life with edification than to hammer on them. And it's something I had to learn in the business world was to be nice to people a little more than to, rather than to correct all the time. Now, there is a place for correction, especially as a parent or a manager or even as a pastor. There's a place for correction. But if that's all we're doing, if you, know, if you think about this, if, if you met your, went to your parents and all they ever did was correct you and never say thank you or you did a good job or thank you for disobedience, you'd get to the place where you didn't want to see them anymore. And this is what Paul's saying. I, don't, I just want to edify you. I want to be able to build you up. Yes, you, you're not making very good decisions in some cases, but I want to find things good to say about you. God's grace builds people up more than the laws of God. And this is what I love to do is be able to tell people, I like what I'm seeing. I like how God's working in your, in your life. I, I like to see how you know, disciplined you are to come to church. I love to see, I love that you're getting into the Bible and, and you're making good decisions. Because you, know, uh, you can look at anybody. Everybody has more room to improve. doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God. There's more room to improve. Because God keeps showing us all the places we need to improve. And this is, I've said many times, God starts out with a little tiny candle and says, okay, look at your life. You've got all these things to clean up. So you clean that little place up, and then he decides, okay, let's put a 40-watt bulb in your life and say, okay, you got a little more cleaning. And then he puts in a 60-watt, 100-watt, you know, 120-200-watt. You know, finally pushes down this great big million-power candle light and says, now look at your life. There's always things we're going to clean out of our life. You know, and if God always was trying, was never building us up, never edifying us, never encouraging us, we could get very discouraging, very discouraged. And this is why I say, you know, sometimes I can say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, the good news is that every time you get something out of your life, God's going to give you something new. And it's true, but at the same time, he's going to say, good job. I'm so glad of where you're at. You've made so many improvements. You have seen God moving in your life. And, we, and he gives us, a, gives us a little time to enjoy the respite before he gives us the next. You know, he's teaching us to love people, and he gives us somebody that's not too hard to love, but hard, and then you know, eventually works us up to somebody that's very hard. He's teaching us forgiveness. He teaches us to forgive little things. Pretty easy to forgive. And then he goes, okay, now I want you that, that thing deep in your heart where you haven't forgiven that person for years, I want you to forgive them. You know, we all know how hard forgiveness can be at times. I've known people that are angry with somebody from 40, 50 years ago. And it's like, just let go of it. You know, let God take it away and they just won't let it go. And God will start something small with them. He'll just teach them to be able to forgive little things and eventually allow them to learn to forgive the hard things. 
And we all know how hard it is to forgive, especially if somebody has really hurt us. You know, not just perceived hurting, but sometimes we can have been really hurt. And we, and we perceive it as, a, as if they did it on purpose. And they may or may not have done it on purpose. And this is the problem. One of the things we have when we deal with other people is we need to be careful not to look like they're, you know, not to look at it as if they're purposely trying to hurt us because they're probably not. Just as in most cases, you're not purposely trying to hurt somebody else. They may perceive it as if you are. You know, and one of the things I've seen over and over in the years is that so many times we go, well, you know, they said this, but this is really what they were thinking. Well, how do you know what they were thinking? You're projecting yourself upon them. Upon them. You know, all I need to be doing is deal with what they did, not why, not try to figure out why they did it or how they did it or what if they were just, you know, they were really trying to get, you know, under my skin and they were doing this on purpose. They might not even be aware that they did anything. You know, this is something that I've seen with people who've been mad at people for decades. When they finally try to clear it up, these they never even knew that they had hurt the person. All they knew is, well, you stopped talking to me. You stopped coming around. I didn't know why. Well, you did such and such. They go, well, I don't remember doing that. I'm really sorry. If I, if you, if I did something, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. And we've all been in that place where somebody's going, well, you did something, and I know you did it on purpose. And you're going, I don't remember even doing anything. You know, most of the time, people, when they hurt us, are not trying to hurt us. There are exceptions. You know, there are people that are just, you know, you know, there are, are exceptions, but you know, even for me at that point, it's not for me to figure out whether they're doing it on purpose or not. Mine is just to put it in God's hands and let God deal with it. If they're doing it on purpose, then he'll take care of it. If it was my perception that it was on purpose and God will do if and I just turn it over to God, then I can have that relationship with him in spite of it. And if it's on purpose, God will deal with it. And this is something that's important. Too many times people look at others and say, you, you did this on purpose. You, you, you just stuck that knife in me and bent it, and, and you meant to do this. And they're going, I'm sorry. One of the reasons I gave up sarcasm is because I tend to be a sarcastic person. I gave it up because too many people took it personally. You, know, you would say something, I'm just being, you know, kind of joking around, being sarcastic, and they take it you know, as if I was attacking them. So I gave up trying to be sarcastic because it hurt too many people. And it wasn't me trying to hurt them, but they took it wrong. So I'm going, okay, I'm going to avoid sarcasm. I'm not perfect in my avoiding of sarcasm because it's part of who I am, but I try to be not sarcastic around people because it can be so easily taken wrong. And you know, here he's saying, you know, we want to be careful of all of this. He says, I had the authority to do this, but I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to edify. And we as Christians are called to edify one another, build one another up. And it's important for us to find things that we can say that are positive. And, you know, it's, and I really truly believe this, that for everybody there is something that you can find to say positive. Even the most, the most awful person has something that you can find to be possible, you know, positive about. You know, uh, you know, you're a pain in the neck when you come to church, but I'm really glad you come to church. You had to leave out the first part of it. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you come to church. Okay? Uh, because that's important. Because I would rather have everybody come to church and be able to hear God's word, and maybe something that they hear is going to touch their heart and change them, than to say, no, you're not, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're so much of a nuisance, I don't want you around. And that's easy for us to do. It's really easy to say, you know, every time you're around, it's, you know, there's chaos and, and, and problems, so I really don't want you around, and that would be the easy answer. And yet that may not be the answer God wants. He wants us to be able to bring people together and hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If somebody's not hearing the word of God, they can't develop their faith. And in the same thing for each one of us. We come to church, we read the Bible so we can build our faith. And then as God builds our faith, we're able to go deeper with him. And then we build the deeper faith, and then we get more faith on top of that because we're ready to hear more, and we hear more. But it starts with hearing and being able to draw people and say, not sure what you're hearing, but we're going we're gonna to let you hear is whatever you can hear. Whatever you're able to develop, we want you to grow. And we can do it on our own, but it's like with anything else. If you've ever tried to do something from a book 
or maybe a YouTube video. And it's a whole lot easier to do it if somebody was right there with you saying, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. You know, there used to be what they called apprenticeships where you came in and you, you got paid very little but you worked with a master. And usually had you doing all the dirty work and everything, but every once in a while, by, okay, now let me show you something. Let me show you how to do this. And you get to be somebody who's an apprentice, and then you get to be, you know, then you get to be the master and teach other people. But it's a lot easier when somebody shows you how, which is the purpose of coming to church. Help you understand what it is you're reading. Be able to answer questions. Be able to direct. Can you learn on your own? Most people can. Not everybody, but most people can learn on their own, given enough time. I tell people I can do a lot of work on a car. It just takes me three or four times longer than it would letting a mechanic do it. Uh, I'll figure it out sooner or later. I hate doing it. I despise doing it. But I can get it figured out. I like the idea now that I make enough money to let somebody else do it. Because <laughs> I don't have to waste days, you know, a day or two trying to fix something. There's certain things that I can do fairly well. But there's other things that I've done. I've done just about everything there is on a, on a car to do. And through the books and through the videos and everything, I figure, figure things out. But it's a whole lot easier when I'm working with somebody. Oh, is that how you do it? That's where it's all, you know, sometimes just finding the stuff. <laughs> you know, you had this picture and it's like, okay, where on the car is the picture that they're showing me? And you find out it's on the opposite side of the car that you're looking for. <laughs> uh, you know, you go, oh, there it is. Now I, can, now I can do it. Pretty much the same thing when we get into the scriptures. God, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this picture, but I just don't see it. And we have somebody that comes along and just says, this is how it applies. And we've all been there. I've been following God for a long time, and I have had many teachers over my lifetime that have said, this is where it's at. This is how you study. This is how you accomplish this. These are the answers to what you're looking for. And the more we get to know about them, the easier the answers come along. You know, we're told in the scriptures, be ready always to give an answer for what you believe. Well, when you first start out, that can be tough. Why do I believe? Because you changed my life. That's the only answer I have for you. And then we learn over time to be able to defend what we believe. And we get better at the defense. And we get better at the defense with the more we know. And we get to go, you know what? I love you just because God says to love you. I'm going to edify you because God says to love you. I'm going to forgive you because God says to forgive you. And you get to the place where sometimes you look at it and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but you do. You know, I know that there are people around chloride that won't come to the church because I say things or I call things sin. I'm sorry, but that's what God has told me to do. You know, I can't change his word. I'm going to preach his word, and if they won't come or they don't like me or whatever it might be, and they want to even badmouth me around, around town, I can't help that. That's in God's defense. And I've had people, you know what so-and-so says about you? I go, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. Because God is my defense. I want God to be my defender. And we need to get to that place. Mm -hmm. God, I don't care what somebody else. Matter of fact, if I knew, I might not be able to deal with them nicely. And it's better not to know. You know it's better not to know. Because I can tell you, when God gets involved, they're going to pay. They're going to pay for slander of his children, no matter where, what, where, what, what they think they're getting away with. They're going to pay for it. And we just need to be able to say, God, everything is under your control. I trust you. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Do we trust God? Do we? Do we trust him to be our defender? Do we protect, trust him to be our protector? Do we trust him to be our teacher? Do we trust him to control the aspects of our life? And every time he comes along, there's going to be this test to say, do you really trust me? And each test gets a little harder and a little harder. And God says, are you willing to trust? Are you willing to know that I'm in control and that I have a plan? And this is why one of my favorite verses outside of 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 2.20 is Romans 8.28, where all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. There's many times I look at it and say, God, I don't understand how this can be good. But you said it will be. And sometimes you're hanging on by the end of the rope that just says, God, you've, you've promised. I'm holding on to the knot at the end of this rope, hoping that your, your word is true. And I can tell you, with 48 years of experience, it's true. 
God is always going to work things out for our good. May not, may not be understood on how, may not be even obvious. We may not even see it in this lifetime, but everything will be for good. And he wants to crucify our flesh. And that is so important because he says, all right, you're believing that is true? That let's crucify your flesh in, your, in the way you look at it. Those two verses work hand in hand. If I let him crucify my flesh, then I trust him more to be honest that, that he's going to, all things work together for good. And if I'm believing in that verse in the first place, I'm going to let him crucify my flesh. It all comes down to God, you're in control. And even when my flesh says God's not in control, I know that he's in control because he says he's in control. And if I just hold on to the fact that God is in control, no matter what comes my way, no matter how bizarre it seems, no matter how harsh it seems on me, I'm able to say, God, don't understand, but you said, and I'm going to trust. And then watch God work. And it's, it is so much fun to watch God work. You know, say, okay, God, don't understand this, but you said you're going to make it work. I'm just going to sit back. You think about somebody like Job who lost everything. Okay? Lost all of his wealth. Lost his kids. The only thing he didn't lose was his wife. And she's telling him, curse God. So he probably would have been better off losing her in one sense. He's got disciples coming in and telling him how bad a man he has to be because he's lost everything. And he's just saying, God, I don't understand this, but you know, I'm going to trust in you. And after a period of time, God gives him back everything. Gives him back more children. Gives him back his wealth. Because he trusted in God. Now, does everything work out that easily in our lifetime? Not necessarily. Some of what we get will just be rewarded when we get to heaven and seen in heaven. But, you know, our trust is in him that, God, you are in control. And we're going to end there because it is now 6 o'clock. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for your day. Lord, help us to learn to trust, to be able to build you up and to listen to you and be guided by you. Lord, we ask that you... Teach us to trust and teach us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.